Unsee the future. How to encourage the more hopeful human tomorrow. Episode 21. Disruption. Oi, oi. Here comes trouble. Paris. The late 18th century. A restless heave of people moves through the huddled lanes of the old French capital, heading for the middle of town. Blood is up, voices rise, a thrill is in the air. Expectations of watching something, there will be no unseeing. A mortal excitement driving them on, wanting to look, compelled to witness. Who knows, as their numbers build, what they expect from the fearsome entertainment they are about to watch. But this tide of people swelling to some 400,000 citizens, emptying out of half of all the homes in the city, is a body of women, men and children alive in days when something fundamental will change and no one's perspective will be safe again. At the Tuileries Gardens, right beside the river, there is the great stage area, thronged by expectation. And Paris, the great audience herself, is now at a standstill, awaiting the moment with rapt attention, breath held. Standing beside the imposing central instrument of the show is Dr. Jacques-Alexandre César Charles, a scientist, a mathematician, and a balloonist. Because it turns out on this particular day, shortly before Christmas 1783, France is waiting quite literally for the balloon to go up. For today is to be the second ever manned flight in history. Just ten days after the Montgolfier brothers had taken the best brand publicity stunt for a paper mill ever buttoned together and elevated it to a whole new level by swapping hens for men, Dr. Charles was going to go one better still and actually live the brand by climbing into the gondola himself to pilot his own 380 cubic metre gas-filled balloon. It seems he'd been a bit of a scientific collaborator with Jacques Etienne and Joseph Michael Montgolfier. But the King of France, Louis XVI, so loved by French crowds, had supposedly spoiled G.A.C.'s fun by barring him from flying in their hot air prototype for safety reasons. So keen was the Roi Soleil's great-great-great-grandson to follow progressive ideas keenly and keep the clever minds elevating France's scientific reputation alive. So, not to be up, up and away, staged, J.A.C., or Jackie Charles to you and me, had been developing his own balloon with some scientific tweaks to the idea. And unlike the Montgolfier's one small step slash giant leap a fortnight before, which all the school books remember, he pointedly didn't invite some debonair show-off actors who patently weren't the patent holders to risk the biggest face plant on record as the test pilot. He wanted to do it. Well, if you want to go down, or preferably up, in history, you have got to commit. So, along with Nicolas Louis Robert, Dr. Charles left the surly bonds of the right bank with gasps from peasantry and aristocracy alike, and ascended to the heavens, looking for a whole new way of seeing everything. 
He made it to over 500 metres up and flew for some two hours, which was a huge success, but then a little huger than planned when Nicky Louie climbed out on the initial touchdown of the craft in the countryside outside Paris and depleted it of some significant ballast in favour of some significant sudden buoyancy. And the good doctor found himself aloft alone at 3,000 metres with earache. The crowd went bananas, or would have done if they'd been able to see any of this on their smartphones. What must the world have looked like from that height to the first humans to ever rise from the ground? A whole new world, surely. The immensity of the view, the smallness of everything known before, and the precariousness of life. No kidding. While Jackie Charles was using the recently named and readily inflamed hydrogen as his lifting gas, as opposed to the Montgolfier's bold plan to use setting fire to dry straw in a big paper bag, in anyone's book, fire in the sky and pilots, chickens and small livestock plummeting to the ground were sort of baked in significant possibilities to the concept of the earliest days of the aviation show. Risk was the staple diet of the frontiersmen especially launching into the, well, not quite final, but perhaps penultimate frontier of the skies above the earth. And where would this leave all of us? Merely gawping at the sky on an unexpected morning off. So much for getting anything done. Now we can fly. Sure, it'll change everything. I need a loo. Disruption! Change you didn't see coming and probably can't foresee the consequences of. If, as a modern person, you think you're used to the idea, growing up in the days since the Industrial Revolution turned the floating paper years into the flywheeled manufacturing years and ultimately the motorised transport years, showing ordinary twerps like me and you the wonders of the whole world. Your grumbles about grounded flights in snow or a bit of pushing and shoving on Platform 3 when the 0815 to Waterloo is late again will seem like business as boring usual you may be yearning for in the coming three decades from today. Perhaps the coming three years. Because if you stop to list out the changes supposedly approaching our daily lives, and purportedly to even some of the fundamentals of how humans currently do everything, it might be tempting to rawly imagine that there will be no such thing as usual at all anymore. Not for those of us who've grown up in the current usual. Indeed, there are those who think that all aspects of our life on, above, orbiting and socially escaping from the Earth Maybe on a roller coaster that's about to jump the tracks, not at all designed to fly. And it's hard to look away. In the blizzard of noise, ideas and arguments during this historic period of these very earliest years in digitally social living, just who are the crackpots or the visionaries? How can we tell? And how high will the balloon soar before it, um, explodes? What cherished symbols of our identities may be more vulnerable to disaster and change than we've thought about much before? Right now, will any of us caught up in the stories of disruption every day soon be able to tell which way is up anymore? Or north, if the magnetic poles flip, but one thing at a time. Welcome to the 21st. It's going to be a riot of disruption on all kinds of levels at once. Oh, and you're going to be responsible 
<laughs> Unsee the future is back, and we're lighting the fires of revolution. Okay, future brand tech priest, let me stop you right there. Pause that withering tweet. The word disruption is, yes, a real eye-roller to anyone in, I don't know, R&D or cultural punditry or just the financial futures markets. It's a vague and unqualified bingo word. In the speed of meme infection and ideas fashion that we live in, where 2007 may as well be the peasant terrorising chicken ballooning years, disruption is as cool a word to entitle your conference talk with as the subheading brought to you by PowerPoint. While I'm at it, I may as well just get it all out of my system and shout Insights! And perhaps Automation! And Immersive! Oh, and definitely Blockchain! Meaninglessly, it passes by like a Dada performance piece and we can all knowingly sneer our way through the next half hour we've old-fashionedly bunked off work. But I've headlined this word here because at the start of Series 2 of Unsee the Future, it just seems like it's really rather worth taking a moment to get straight in our heads that it mightn't be a bad idea to kind of prepare ourselves together for a bit of bother ahead. A season of new types of disruption that may already be disrupting the actual seasons. What is worth us bothering with in the swirl of typical future chatter all around us today? And where will we find ourselves in all this? Are we really looking at everything just falling to bits in a West End of Days musical nihilism fever dream? Or does the TEDxpreneur's vaguely Mystery Science Theatre 3000 sense of the word disruption actually imply some down-to-earth principles that might even help the handful of us left who don't do a podcast? Well, if my instinct with this public research project of mine, or podular webcast if you will, is to put together a sense of the complete picture of our times, just enough to make some new connections of understanding in the choices I make and the stories I want to share while here in the middle of this human planet project as we all are for a short spell, then beyond the useful circumference of the UN's global goals, which together structure out what we're facing all at once, there are themes for us to explore, I think, that will be affecting the trends of our living in the next few years. And the consequences. The things we've grown up with aren't as boringly safe as we're used to thinking. But the whole definition of the word disruption relates directly to usual thinking. And how a little lack of safety doesn't half wake you up a bit. <laughs> Somewhere between the usual human business of making emotional connections that can motivate us and testing practical responses to problems, I suspect one of the themes threading through the disruptions already unfolding around us today is the idea of usual human business having to get used to looking for more than just short-term opportunities, like selling dinghies to people in climate crisis floodplains but to develop some new long-term trends of opportunity in a properly reappraised context. More cathedral-building thinking at global scale. We're going to need to practically develop some bankable hope in new habits for new circumstances. But reappraising context, finding those new perspectives, well, that's where theatre comes in. 
playing our way into new ways of seeing and waking up the worm to them. Practice together. This sounds like a big part of leadership to me. Confidence in vision and system. But it does look like we're currently struggling to find much um, good leadership in many of our supposedly leading players at the moment. In the old usual story we've been living in, the current status panto, few politicos seem to understand either truly good theatre or good lab work. Never mind actual good. From royal box to the cheap seats, is it any wonder we're trying not to feel terribly lost? Which is why I wonder, I just wonder, if the real disruption of our times ahead will turn out to be you and me stepping up from right where we are in the chorus or in the huddle of dialogue-free extras to get on with a kind of leadership traditionally far out of touch from us, the sort usually done in a spotlight with an agent taking leading roles in ways no one alive before us could have quite pictured. Leadership as ownership by ordinary nobodies, networked together en masse, not lone-seeming fantastical historic figures. A quietly profound social disruption enabled by lots of other disruptions all coinciding on us right now. Some think it would be a logical next evolution of the techno-social shifts that opened up a radical new human space called socialism 200 years ago. Yeah, but don't mention that. And the stage is set for it. Some would say, like political writer Paul Mason, that we are a new definition of human. We are a connected species now, thanks to the converging technologies of the smartphone. We have digitally begun the migration from consumers to change creators. And, at the same time, we're in the middle of a lot of disgruntlement with the status quo, right when we are already more agent than anyone who's ever lived. Amid the shite storm of our future shock feelings, all the tools of revolution are at our fingertips, sitting on the loo. Either that, or right there in the loo, we will be subsumed into the corporate matrix, forever confused by oligarch-funded social media projects into bickering with each other and hoping to get heard over the noise of all of us talking at once and wondering who the hell we are and why the hell does no one recognise us and otherwise going back to our branded shopping habits. Who knows which way it will go? All the ways, surely. But one other thing's for sure. If instead of feeling useless, you want to find opportunity... There's one place to go be very observant. The place where usual gets overturned and revolutions are lit. Crisis. Perhaps it's long overdue time that we all went actively looking for a good bit of trouble. Because we've never been able to do more with it. Climate. War. Growth, consumerism, poverty, privacy, food, refugees, drug resistance, engagement, the nature of work, the nature of play, the nature in shopping, what we wear, what is wearing us, what is inside us, representation, recognition, division, noses put out of joint, businesses put out of work. In the gang economies of disappointment, it's all up for smash and grab at the moment. We've been living in a time of consumerism and don't we know it? It's been oddly paralysing, I think, in many ways. Buying, eating, watching, disposing, forgetting. A time of unprecedented connectivity in a blindsiding culture of disconnection across the West. Is what I reckon. 
Born out of a lot of trouble that we've grown used to wanting to avoid, like civil unrest. But, as any parent knows, when things go quiet, trouble is usually brewing. The ballooning craze of the late 17 and early 1800s seems like a very quaint cultural moment alongside other kinds of disruption brought about by changing perspectives right then. The very year, the very time of year that manned balloons were taking to the skies over the French capital, the city was hosting the signing of the Treaty of Paris and the first big blow to the mighty British Empire. Thanks, Frenchies. The founding of the United States of America, the home superstate of a Republican New World Order. It was a funny time of contrasts, a time when revolutionary change wasn't achieved just by shopping a bit differently, but by actually staging an armed revolt and throwing tea in the soup, but also of going to coffee houses and discussing the nature of reason and individualism. An era that developed the idea that there could be a science of man and that the history of mankind was one of progress which could be continued with the right thinking, as Robert Wilde puts it for ThoughtCo. Because, of course, it was also the time that laid the foundations of our own times. The era of the Enlightenment, as this was, lifted lots of perspectives and changed expectations with them. Science basically became a proper thing during this period, bafflingly little time ago from now. But amid all the engineering feats and philosophical revelations that followed, social and political life were ultimately disrupted enormously. And didn't the French aristocracy soon know it? They actually thought they were being progressive. It's why King Louis wanted to host the moment America made King George take a bit of the great out of Britain, to seem forward-thinking. Part of the future. He had ten years left before the entire monarchy of France was brought down with his head. Listen to your audience, mate. Basic theatre. Like making sure there's cake in the foyer. Yet, two and a half centuries later, old power structures may have changed less than we are used to imagining under the brutalist cladding. As Farida Jalalzai and Meg Rinka put it, in their own study of world leaders between 2000 and 2017, more than one in ten of them came from political families. Some 12% of today's political top dogs were born into it like royalty. Our very idea of modern liberal democracy tied as it is to that economic culture that produces government-dwarfing corporate multinationals may be very held back indeed from giving us quite yet what it's really promised. And it's driving us mad with the dashed expectations. Like 1980s tech. Have the dicky foundations of Western wealth been sufficiently socially addressed yet for us to really move into another era? New frontiers, they're dangerous, need to be faced with courage. But most of us avoid the frontier if we can help it. A lot of risky fuss, honestly. Yeah, the problem with life in the 21st is that we are all now connected to the frontier in a way. In order to have breakthrough influence 300 years ago, you had to know someone at court or otherwise be part of an august institution. Today, you can tweet your arse and have it trend to comments in the commons. But all this coarse shoutiness. It's rather disappointing, isn't it, this digital revolution so far? And like endless zooming camera motion and CG in cinema, it's pretty boring and, well, meaningless. Should we in fact be looking for a bit more trouble than we've known recently? A systems thinker Mark Modesti says, if we don't go looking for trouble, 
It will come looking for us. He suggests the idea that when problems loom, there are two mental modes of response, the fixer and the builder, or the whack-a-mole and the high striker, as he puts it. Which are you? Trying to put out as many fires as possible? Or planning how to light a fire of disruptive thinking in the middle of your normal ways of doing things? Generally, having a go at anything involves a bit of both, but it's invariably easier seeming to hide from trouble instead of going looking for it. He cites a cringingly obvious example of fledgling internet streaming service a Netflix supposedly approaching Blockbuster Video years ago about helping to take their business online, and they repeatedly refused. That's repeatedly refused. The business didn't want to deal with the pain of disruption, so they had to deal with the pain of displacement, he says flatly, adding the often coughed belief that getting on for half the Fortune 500 businesses of today could be gone in the next decade. And the main reason, he says, failure to embrace change, failure to look for and embrace trouble. Trouble is opportunity. As the Future Laboratory puts it in the resilience movement, embrace the unsafe, embrace positive discomfort, embrace the new awkward, embrace the right to fail, and fight bubble-wrapped existence, comfort zone living, space-safe wisdom. So, are we all supposed to be hustlepreneurs now, as Marcus John Henry Brown would put it? Here at the end of the world, should we all be thinking like agile opportunists leaning into lean innovation over the underpass brazier? Bet you have it on your LinkedIn profile. Well, if so, it's worth remembering some business basics while managing your personal brand, selfieing on the San Andreas. From balloon mania to the dot-com boom, with many volumes of hot air and inflammatory reactions in between, we know about floating ideas and bursting bubbles, to say nothing of milking metaphors. I'm not so sure we should be simply looking for the next big idea. For one thing, they tend to come looking for us. Better to understand that actual progress for the human planet often seems to proceed through a wrestle between emerging new technology and social restlessness. Attempted and unintended consequences, intent and impact. You bet, true disruption comes when a number of sympathetic new elements converge. Some of the disruptions we're facing now are, yes, tech-driven, famously, obviously, inevitably, and you bet they're interlinked, duh. But in this aspect of human life today, it's not the technology itself that's the real driver of change. We're way past mere worries of newfangled gadgetry. Data is the disruptor. According to Angelo Appa, Technical Sales and Business Development Director at Lenovo, the rate of change in our lives with technology, the thing that underpins it, is increasing and increasing and increasing. And we've barely started. The components of the truly connected future are getting bigger, faster and smarter. As Eric Schmidt, exec chairman of Google, apparently put it, from the dawn of civilization until 2003, humankind generated five exabytes of data. Now we produce five exabytes every two days, and the pace is accelerating. With GPUs or graphics processing units some 80 times faster than traditional CPUs, the big data we're generating about absolutely everything we do is shifting zettabytes of information around. Imagine what will happen when, if it doesn't kill us and we can work out how to install it, 5G brings us 100 times the speed of 4G. 
It'll unlock the augmentation of reality in time to plug into all sorts of new wearables. It will change the way we see the world again, blurring gameplay and reality habitually. It means that, in everything we're already used to doing, we'll be expecting much better experiences. A lot better than texts, load wheels and other people's Instagram holiday pics. As Mike Hawkeyard of GameBrain said at the same event, this will take us somewhere properly weird. But it will start with a simple evolution of what we already do in online gaming, playing Fortnite with not just mates in different homes, but the world. At school, by 2050 easily, probably 2030, you're going to have a football team, a rugby team and an e-sports team. No question. We're going to be playing e-sports everywhere, he says. But the global reach of gaming in coming decades may see national lotteries gamify into online experiences for lottery-sized payouts. Or government initiatives demand certain participation in such virtual hunger games. Why wouldn't your children want to develop these skills, he says. And beyond these implications? We're just at the point now where we can say that soon we will be able to upload ourselves, Mike says coyly. Cheat death. Yeah, the coming Tectopia. Cheats for death. It's just, down the same road, it's not only our play, but the very nature of human work that's famously under threat. Automation, which we know now is about so very much more than mere robotic assembly lines, but bot thinking in everything we tap into our phones, is in the process of taking away our thinking, our problem solving and our labour. AI is helping fill in significant gaps in our abilities, making sense of the data stream in our news feeds already and prototyping ideas in labs before anything is materially built. But if in the techtopian future we can't get paid for our brains or our mindless brawn, what can we get paid for to buy food and shelter? What are the skills we should be training children for to cope with this new world? Yeah, is our education system getting to grips with this nicely and adapting? How is that going? Turns out that living digital lives with everything of ordinary life already connected remotely isn't quite as cool as it might have sounded in previous decades. As a friend of mine put it, there is no cloud, only someone else's computer. And we seem socially happy to place everything of value to ourselves on other people's computers. Bank accounts, photos of children, deepest late-night thoughts, music collections, all transactions we ever do, showing where we live, where we go, what we buy, what we love, our love lives themselves, our art. All just uploaded. Surrendered. Happy as we apparently are now to not simply buy the products of global corporate industry, but be the product. As bots already outpace our democracies and emotional identities, how secure is any aspect of our lives like this? Cyber attacks could wipe out anything from nuclear facilities to, well, just you, your identity, because of where you store it. On someone else's computer, but you don't know where. This is hardly likely to become less of a problem as the century progresses. Is Wait till your whole home is connected to someone else's computer as all the spaces you live in join the Internet of Things. Fridges, radios, digital carsies probably, all relaying even more data to someone else's computer. Not just your news, but your poos. They'll be listening to us in every room next. Wait, 
But beyond the insufficient and now rather quaint term, digital, oh, it looks like we are heading towards the kind of technological inevitability that is already becoming biological that will have us manipulating our bodies and minds and their capacities dramatically as the century works through. Because this is really just an extension of the psychology of Facebook, merely enabled by our long-established comfort with physical joint replacements and embedded defibrillators. We're happy to outsource most of ourselves. We are on the threshold of changing what a human physically is, not just systemically. And this is just one reason anthropologists have adopted the term Anthropocene for our present era. The climatic, geological, physical era where humans change the definition of life on Earth, tipping balances irrevocably, fusing technology with biology in their own bodies and in their thinking. Such power might even rename us to Homo Deus, Yuval Noah Harari's calm description of what we will become. Self-sculpted and totally dominant, the human gods. Yet, this is comparative wallpaper. A consumer electronic show Wired magazine VR game. So much futury theatrical scenery. There is much more than a coincidence of technologies happening around us because all this is happening in one context bigger than all others. The planet's rapidly degrading web of life. The climate crisis looks like it will be the world's new Brexit in the next few years. All we ever talk about, hear about, worry about and do nothing about. So what could flip the public mood from beating the sky beast of progress with pitchforks to turning vegan, weaving our own kitchenware and ditching the diesel sedan for a family bicycle, if that's your vision of the future? At the moment, it seems the politicians riding high are jabbing Forkians all across the democratic world because of the bullshit of progress, as people are feeling it. Not many officially elected voices have found an alternative, inspiring vision for the future yet. Is this because the status quo that millions feel has failed them is the status MTV, the time of moderates, who don't seem to care much about fights for social and economic fairness or the bother of clearing out bullshit? Couch politicos. As Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez says, rising hopey changey system irritant to her own Democrats, it seems as much as the Republicans, and now leading proponent of the Green New Deal in the US, moderate is not a stance. It's just an attitude towards life of like, meh, meh, has been our political vision. We've become so cynical that we view cynicism as an intellectually superior attitude and we view ambition as youthful naivety when the greatest things we have ever accomplished as a society have been ambitious acts of vision. The meh is worshipped now. And for what? The meh, the culture of docile disconnection that ironically links the whole globalised world in the influence of the neoliberal democratic financialised growth culture, looks like the planet-sized behaviour system that created the climate crisis, the sixth great mass extinction, the plastic tsunami, the machine farming of animals, the persistence of poverty, the wars for oil, 
the silencing of local voices, the dehumanization of industrial economics. And to power all this, the dumping of carbon dioxide and methane and multiple channels of mindless waste into a life web that's just, what, 36,000 miles in circumference in total isolation in the universe. In this disrupting, disconnecting, noisy society, how on earth can we talk to ourselves anew? I think of two things in the face of this question. Firstly, collectively, it's hard to really see the long-term implications of new ideas or always spot what is a true disruptive element in the progress of human ways of living, certainly where it will take us. Who really saw quite all this coming? Oh, and oh yeah, balloons meant we realised we could fly now! You never know what might emerge from a crazy bit of creative marketing. But, secondly, a key component in the idea of flight catching on in engineering sheds was audiences. Ballooning was, before anything else, spectacular theatre, and it lit a fire under the imagination of problem solvers as a result of filling the eyes of the masses for a bit. As David Buckland of International Art Science Initiative Cape Farewell said to Costing the Earth, people don't like being told what to do but they love to be seduced. We shouldn't be simply thinking like entrepreneurs, but artist citizens. Have you heard of a weird chap called Elon Musk? Seeing the hopey changey bit. I have a local mate who, it's gotta be said, has done some terrific work with her knickers lately. A friend from the wider artistic family in the Bomo Bay area, Lorna Rees is a creative, a performer and a theatre developer who's moved into a notable new medium of late and, yeah, it's pants. Protest pants. Rebel knickers. Lorna's local MP in Christchurch is one Christopher Chope. If you've not heard of him, I'm not sure many outside Lorna's town had until he came to prominence for blocking Weir a Hothouse MP's private member's bill to make upskirting a criminal offence a widely supported bill by MPs and the public that Christopher Chope blocked on grounds of procedural scrutiny to the bill, he said. A little scrutiny into Mr Chope's voting record left some feeling he was, well, not exactly jovially progressive on some matters, and so she said, in anger at his decision to block the passing of such a socially mindful bill, she decided to string up various pairs of her underwear across his constituency office door. Sporting the text in public, no one should photo my pants unless I want them to. And it got photographed and made the newspapers. As Julia Bullis blogged it, her anarchistic act attracted broadcasters from ITV to BBC, amplifying the chorus of cross-party anti-Chope condemnation and sparking copycat bunting outside Chope's Westminster office. Which MPs did that, I wonder? When the MP stalled another bill, which sought to support victims of female genital mutilation earlier this year, Lorna once more deployed some defiant pants to his door. Art as protest. Not simply making some angry vandalism, but making some cleverly creative marks about injustice, and doing it playfully well enough to get noticed. Which wasn't always so fun for Lorna herself. I've had some horrible Twitter abuse, she said, with the range of it from condescension to threats of violence, such is social media age free speech. But Lorna, who is an energising sort of joy enabler in all her creative work, I think, feels emboldened, not diminished, 
in finding a way to take a personal stand for her values, in speaking up for kindness and equality. It just made me realise that we don't have to do huge things to make a difference, she said. Speaking out can have that kind of funny effect. Perhaps like getting tattoos, I understand one bit of ink always leads to wanting more. And it's something I think we're going to see more and more of us ordinary folk having a go at in the future. Not just ink, but protest ink. Not simply feeling needled, but wanting to make a lasting change to the world we live in. Because their future's worth fighting for, I hear. And it is art, I would argue, that is our real weapon of salvation here, whatever we're trying to champion. To wake us up with kinetic learning. But then I would, wouldn't I? It's kind of become my thing, apparently. Founder of the Women's March, Sophie Flicker, says sometimes we can have a greater effect changing hearts and minds with art than we can on an aggressively political level. The arts establish a different entry point for individuals to get involved. Of course, we're a lot more used to being passive consumers of culture than makers or responders. How many t-shirts and decorations of protest do we wear and hang on the wall without living any differently? But Sophie says it's not about trying harder to be properly radical. An entry point doesn't just mean physically showing up to a protest or rally. It also involves creating language and ways of thinking about things that might be different from how we thought of things before. It means creating an opportunity to share a piece of music or visual art or a television show that not only depicts an underrepresented group, but also helps you to think differently. Art is partly about representation, and this is a huge aspect of encouraging equality. The power of being seen in shared culture. Characters, stories, perspectives that you relate to. Coaxes emotional connection. And so, motivation. Ownership. And as my own artistic explorations have coaxed out of me, what else does the human planet arguably need right now more than new ways of seeing everything? Relensing our culture. If our culture is behaviourally, what triggered the climate crisis? and built economic habits that have changed the world but are costing the earth. Disillusioning millions of us by this stage. Selling out millions of us. How do we see all that differently? Well, we could always hear it instead. I started talking to Computer Stanford Music Research Director Chris Chafe about sonifying my green data for a string quartet says behavioural economics researcher and music maker Nick Save. He was responding to some of the data sets that research scientist Lauren Oakes had collected studying the effects of climate change in the Alaskan wilderness, hooking up the complex numbers to musical charts. By attributing different instruments to different species of tree, for example, listening through the piece just brings alive a sense of the transformation going on in that part of the world. You can hear it on the blog. To hear the patterns that it took me years to understand was incredible, said Lauren. Or what if we told stories with smell? Artist Michael Pinsky created an installation called Pollution Pots, a series of interlinked geodesic domes that contain carefully mixed recipes emulating the relative presence of ozone, particulate matter, nitrogen dioxide, sulphur dioxide and carbon monoxide which pollute London, New Delhi, Sao Paulo and Beijing. And it does sound like a visceral soup of realisation, moving through and breathing in that relative experience. 
We cannot articulate smell in the same way we can articulate our visual scene, which means that it goes straight in at the emotive level, Michael says. Whether that produces change in our behaviour because we haven't embraced it intellectually, I don't quite know yet. Perhaps this research will help to discover. But, he says, I think it's very important that art remains open-ended. It was a project produced as part of ClimArt, a four-year multidisciplinary research project of studies assessing how audiences are affected by climate-related artwork and engagement. Highlighting these projects for BBC's Costing the Earth, Tom Heap says this sort of work is about neuroeconomics, as Nick Save explained to him. Neuroeconomics is about studying decision-making using brain imaging. What really seems to power pro-environmental behaviour is the emotional centres of our brains, he says. Blue planet, anyone? But, he says, when we engage the bits of our brains that calculate value and do cost-benefit analyses, we tend to follow more selfish actions. Art and music, if we can faithfully represent what's going on in the world, allows us to translate that into something that's intuitive and emotional and connects people with something that's otherwise very large in scope and very hard to grasp, he says. As Jess Worth from Art Not Oil also told Tom Heap, we find that using art, using theatre, using song, using movement, we're able to connect with audiences in a way that maybe traditional protests can't manage. Art can visualise bring things suddenly alive by wanging the senses. But it's hard to strike a meaningful balance across our arts between challenging us with new awarenesses and doing what the whole permaculture and sustainable circular economy and environmental movements are really implying. Reconnecting us to natural beauty. There are two kinds of activism, says Zoe Svensson of Metis Arts. There's one to get people engaged and there's another to work out what we're going to do and how we're going to respond and who we're going to be. Bringing very different voices from very different backgrounds together to think about that is a role of the arts. Zoe's creative work aims to engage research in public, learning things by engaging people with very visible new experiences. It makes sense to be thinking about these questions rather than a kind of cultural amnesia, she says. When I think about the world my children are growing up in, I do think we're going to look back and say, who the hell were we? The generation that let all this happen. And when I don't see that reflected in the news and in the culture around me, it's really disturbing. But art can create a space that's cathartic around recognising what's going on. And she quotes Indian writer Amitav Ghosh's book The Great Derangement, which expects future generations to surely hold politicians and world leaders accountable for what they let happen to the planet in this age, but also asserts that they may well hold artists and writers to be equally culpable, for the imagining of possibilities is not, after all, the job of politicians. Art is meant to be disruptive testimony, and as I'll explore more as Unsee the Future evolves, reoccupying it as a mode of all our living, not just that of supposed creative priests, will be a crucial reculturing of us to respond to the 21st century world. All of us, expressive explorers, cultural testifiers, and community owning citizens, confident to articulate it all. And the thing is, it doesn't take many of us to disrupt. Erica Chenoweth wrote her PhD on how and why people use violence to seek political goals, and she came to the initial conclusion that, well, to overthrow oppressive regimes, you might have to stage some armed intervention. 
fight fire with gunfire. As she reports on Rational Insurgent, which researches into how civil resistance can be an effective force for change in the world, her conclusions were challenged at a workshop run by the International Centre on Nonviolent Conflict. As she puts it herself, at that point, her view on such perspective was that it was well-intentioned but dangerously naive. Challenged to look at the data empirically, Erica ended up spending two years collecting information on all major non-violent and violent campaigns for the overthrow of government or territorial liberation since 1900. Adding simply, and the results blew me away. For over a century, non-violent campaigns worldwide were twice as likely to succeed outright as violent insurgencies, a trend increasing over time, she claims. In the last 50 years, civil resistance has become increasingly frequent and effective, whereas violent insurgencies have become increasingly rare and unsuccessful. This is true even in extremely repressive authoritarian conditions where we might expect non-violent resistance to fail. Why? Erica's data suggests that it takes just 3.5%, 3.5% of a population to mobilise against a state for it to fail. Many, she says, succeeded with less. But, she adds, get this, every single campaign that did surpass that 3.5% threshold was a non-violent one. In fact, campaigns that relied solely on non-violent methods were on average four times larger than the average violent campaign, and they were often much more representative in terms of gender, age, race, political party, class and urban-rural distinctions. Blimey, that's simply going to be representing more corners of that society. At this point, online, as I speak, I randomly see a Guardian article forwarded by my local Green Party, highlighting this. By 2pm, five London landmarks, Waterloo Bridge, Marble Arch, Parliament Square, Oxford Circus and Piccadilly Circus, had been blocked by thousands of protesters bringing widespread disruption. The protests are planned to continue for at least a week. Extinction Rebellion as a mate of mine said, yeah, I wonder if they blocked the main roads near where they live. But they're getting noticed. The group is calling on the government to reduce carbon emissions to zero by 2025 Ooh. and establish a citizens' assembly to devise an emergency plan of action to tackle climate change and biodiversity loss. Waterloo Bridge was blocked to traffic and turned into an impromptu garden bridge with people bringing trees, flowers and setting up a miniature skate park. At Oxford Circus, thousands of protesters danced at the normally busy junction and a life-size model of a boat was parked in the middle of the crossing with the slogan, Tell the Truth, emblazoned on the side. And if you saw the pictures, a lot of people said, be nice if London could be like this more often, eh? With this instantly-to-hand example in mind, then simply think of Greta Thunberg. Still years away from 18, this autistic schoolgirl has allowed her neural diversity to empower her and kind of open up the way the world sees what's possible, helping change the very nature of the climate debate with her school strikes for climate action. She got invited to Davos, age 16, and she told it straight. Some people say that the climate crisis is something that we will have created, but that is not true, because if everyone is guilty, then no one is to blame, and someone is to blame, 
Some people, some companies, some decision-makers in particular, have known exactly what priceless values they have been sacrificing to continue making unimaginable amounts of money. And I think many of you here today belong to that group of people. Fluff me! I've been asleep my whole life! Erica Chenoweth effectively concludes we need a new way of seeing how to resist and disrupt whatever the culture change we're looking for. What if our history courses emphasise the decade of mass civil disobedience that came before the Declaration of Independence, rather than the war that came after? What if Gandhi and King were the basis of the first chapter of our social studies textbooks rather than an afterthought? What if every child left elementary school knowing more about the suffragist movement than they did about the Battle of Bunker Hill? And what if it became common knowledge that when protests become too dangerous, there are many non-violent techniques of dispersion that might keep participants safe and keep movements resilient? The single-minded modus of violent action takes a particular human energy. It's as hard to start as it is to stop. It's risky and effortful. It's often an overflow of sheer caged anger. Non-violent action tends to end up working out more flexibly, creatively. Not just showing up en masse sometimes, which is occasionally vital, but doing things less visibly coordinated as well. Disrupting in more creative ways. It's more sustainable, feels more energising to more people, especially given the power of organisation and ideas spreading that social media gives us. And that's before we get to the technology that's coming. Something we should feel empowered to do by engaging bolder creative testimony in our lives with the confidence of such influencing principles is to push for much better creative design thinking in all our problem solving a return to first principles, wherever we have an intractable problem. I think crises demand this. No simple slapping on of another layer of wallpaper like our parents all did. Paul Willoughby is a designer and graphic artist from Human After All, who among other things publish the beautiful Weapons of Reason magazine. He used to make the equally gorgeous Little White Lies film publication, and he came to talk at AUB Human this March to essentially pose the question... What is really possible when you're not constrained by iteration and existing culture? If you didn't just keep patching new thinking on top of old, what could you do by working back to the core problem-solving of first principles? More than you think is usually the answer. He found not so far into his own creative career that he was draining a purpose in his advertising work, and it got him philosophical about how to find answers to problems. Design creates culture. Culture shapes values. Values determine the future, he said, quoting Robert L. Peters. Before quoting the mystic poet Khalil Gibran, your reason and your passion are the rudder and the sails of your seafaring soul. Reason and passion. Very personal responses to a troubled world. Find your reason, he said. Nurture your reason and reason from first principles. Dig and keep digging until you've really got to the core of the problem's question. Design thinking is about working out the perfect resonance of beauty and functionality by asking the most fundamental questions we can about a problem. Emotion and logic together, where the human life is optimised. Don't be a fixed mindset person, have a growth mindset, Paul said. 
Embrace challenges and persist. Fail early and often to get to good quicker. It's this kind of active, empowered thinking that's elevated the former PayPal founder Elon Musk to one of Forbes magazine's most powerful people on the planet. First principles digging and a goodly sense of the showman in vital need of an audience. Musk has radically shifted the entrenched worlds of cars, energy, space exploration and global travel by asking questions less bound by cultural habit and by weaving inspiring new stories out of the results. It's literally changing the human planet, whether you think he's personally nuts or not. And while few of us are as restlessly curious as the boring company boss, design thinking represents principles anyone could reach for. If you let your values become both your passion and your reason. These days, many more of us can do rather more than just watch. And simply must. We must be more than just witnesses. But to make sense of this, our disruption lives will have to also involve disrupting the unedited flow of culture vomit into ourselves, managing our emotional resources, seeing that kind of wellness, mindfulness, as central to the task. We'll need to learn how to survive disruption, so we can surf it. Alan Jacobs says, It's hard to imagine a time more completely presentist than our own, more tethered to the immediate, and it's hard to imagine a person more exemplary of our presentism than the current President of the United States. He is a creature of the instant, responsive only and wholly to immediate stimulus. The social media ecosystem is designed to generate constant, instantaneous responses to the provocations of now. We cannot, from within that ecosystem, he says, restore old behavioural norms or develop new and better ones. We will, he says, have to cultivate what the great American novelist Thomas Pynchon calls temporal bandwidth. In Pynchon's 1973 novel Gravity's Rainbow, an engineer named Kurt Mondorgan explains that temporal bandwidth is the width of your present, your now. The more you dwell in the past and the future, the thicker your bandwidth, the more solid your persona, but the narrower your sense of now, the more tenuous you are. Increasing your temporal bandwidth perhaps starts with making sense of the past, dwelling on past perspectives and lessons. Heritage. It does give you perspective, but in my own more recent explorations of it creatively, with folks such as Valley's Noir Storytelling Theatre's beautiful and oddly publicly resonant cargo, it's an awareness that inevitably seems to echo forward to me. It implies questions about the future, responsibilities to it. But if we're always only feeling moment by moment, we can more easily miss what's significant in its happening. As Jacobs puts it, some decisions that seemed trivial when they were made proved immensely important, while others, which seemed world-transforming, quickly sank into significance. The tenuous self, sensitive only to the needs of this instant, always believes, often incorrectly, that the present is infinitely consequential. That frame of mind is dangerously susceptible to alarmist notions. It's a situation Matthew Wilburn King says is not helped by our evolution-shaped brain biases. We lack the collective will to address climate change because of the way our brains have evolved over the last two million years, he supposes. 
Humans are very bad at understanding statistical trends and long-term changes. He quotes political psychologist Connor Sale, director of research at One Earth Future Foundation. We have evolved to pay attention to immediate threats. We overestimate threats that are less likely but easier to remember, like terrorism, and underestimate more complex threats like climate change. It's about emotional connection, some things we feel, some things we just don't. But in this age, living only in the moment in a jacked-up MTV news cycle from last century, we'll go mad. Those who work for the current president have had to learn that yesterday's truth is today's lie, and today's lie will be tomorrow's truth, as Alan Jacobs puts it. Which is, you know, Kafkaesque, and definitely Orwellian. He quotes German philosopher Hans Jonas, What force shall represent the future in the present? And adds, in other words, what laws and norms will embody our care for those who come after us? including those already here and those yet to be born. But this is a question that we cannot ask if our thoughts are imprisoned by the stimulation of what rolls across our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Waking up to this a little more consciously may be part of how we will develop something needed to face the world of disruption and actually seize its opportunities. A new kind of resilience. Maybe even a resilience movement. Resilience isn't just about toughening up, says the Future Laboratory co-founder Martin Raymond. It's about relearning, rebooting and recalibrating brands, businesses, corporations and more importantly, ourselves as we push back against the age of safe, sanitised spaces, anonymous branding, faltering organisations and erratic responses to those big questions of our age. We've been living in a state of self-censorship, hyper-safe spaces and comfort zone culture nestling among the people, platforms, places and behaviours that make us feel like one of the crowd, the organisation says. But this bubble-wrapped existence hasn't worked. Self-care has turned into a social media performance. Our responsibilities are outsourced to technology and young people avoid social situations in favour of the safety of home. Yet anxiety and personal dissatisfaction remain prevalent and people are pushing to make urgent change. It's a principle that in an age where so much is about to coincide on us in new ways, we have to go looking for trouble like an ally, being much more intentional, a lot less passive. Nurturing mindsets of positive discomfort, tenacity, fortitude in failure, that kind of thing to go along with a much more fluid state of social relationships and identities and a possibly freaky level of programmable realities coming. As Matthew Taylor puts it in Wired, technological change will continue to impact on our lives, but we will question it much more. And for tech, I suspect, read everything. Disruption may simply become, for the empowered feeling, very consciously cultural believing perhaps that we can be evolution's conscious mutation within the system. Tracy Follows, the futurist, says trailblazers are very rarely inside the system. They say things people in power don't want to hear or make them feel uncomfortable. They do unacceptable things and therefore are very rarely accepted or celebrated at the time, only looking back when their impact is clear. Few of us are a Musk or a Thunberg, right? Only... I'm not so sure in the possible futures we need to envision. With hindsight, 
Prophets are usually murdered horribly or thrown into deep dungeons to languish privately. It's been often true in history. And hey, the Maverick LP, mocked by the record industry, can become the game changer because, bah, creativity. But in another sense, we are all the system. Products of the human planet affecting little ways it does things all the time. So some of us working outside the status quo habits turn out to be effectively system mutations that catch on. Sometimes with people who are working right in the heart of old Hollywood or even government. Even while institutions seem most easily to calcify around their founding ideas from other ages and just run out of relevance. As Make It In Music quoted Sabri Subi, Wake up every day with a clear, defined purpose and attack the things that will take you closer to your goals. Don't let inaction kill your motivation and momentum. Take violent action instead. If you really want it. The change, the recognition, the new way of seeing. If you can be bothered. Perhaps crisis and connective behaviours together are already spooling up a whole new habit engine for us, where even sleepy old you and me do want it. Maybe together we have an age of intervention and engagement coming that will allow none of us to make no difference. Maybe exceptional will be the new usual. Perhaps all becoming digital nomad consumers, we will all find ourselves embracing a more engaged sense of place to really transform the planet. Wrap your worm around that future. However we are currently presenting, perhaps we should all admit we are in transition. Taking a leading role is not getting the old fairy tale, the dashing princess or the beautiful buccaneer. It's not stardom. Stardom only disrupts the individual's life. A more hopeful future will undoubtedly be about empowering true community, not just with emerging technology, but emerging attitudes inspired by crisis. Finding a group of people to build a gondola big enough for that audience to come with you on the maiden balloon voyage, not just leaving them to gawp at the sky helplessly. The individual taking ownership of their place in the planet and encouraging the geek love might turn out to be the mighty anonymity of really disrupting business as usual changing the freaking world if you know how to lift people up with you discover more links and video and reading on the blog of this post at unseethefuture.com and be the first to get the future in your inbox subscribe to the momo memos at unseethefuture.com forward slash amigos Unsee the Future is a Momo Tempo production. Obviously.